Good morning, happy Monday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, happy National Batman Day. So I think DC Comics celebrated on the 19th over the weekend, but um, <coughs> excuse me, but I think I also have some information that today is the official National Batman Day. So we're going to celebrate that today if it's okay with you. And then again, isn't every day Batman Day. So in celebration, let's do a Q&A. Um, it appears to be a very simple question, but we're going to dig into it a little bit and, and maybe get a little bit more depth of understanding about a couple of concepts. So this comes from Mihail. And Mihail says, could you please explain how to improve hip abduction, so abduction for wide ISA with, a very, with very tight adductors? Okay. So, right away, you kind of hit on one of my pet peeves there, Mihail. It's this concept of tight. So tight is a sensation. We need to, to recognize it as such. So it's not a representative property of, of, of muscle. Um, so when somebody says that something is tight, we don't know if it's eccentrically oriented and producing tension or concentrically oriented and producing tension. And so unless we want to fall into the, the traps of the stre stretch and strengthen crowd, we got to be very, very careful when we, when we use a representation. Um, or, or a concept like tight. So what we wanna do is we wanna look at it from the concentric to eccentric orientation. So that represents the position and, and is much more useful. So based on your description, if we have limited hip abduction, we're gonna have concentric orientation of the musculature that is limiting that abduction. So let's start using these concepts a little bit more effectively. Now, you also mentioned wide ISA. So when I put together the, the, the concepts of, of the, the wide and the narrow archetypes, people looked at ISAs for, forever, they looked at structure, but what I did is, is, I, is I followed one very simple rule, and, is, and that is that the structure is going to determine the strategy. So when we have a wide ISA with limited extremity ranges of motion, then I know I'm in the midst of a compensatory strategy, and because of the, the wide ISA, I know that the bias is going to be an exhalation bias. Now, assuming my, my client or patient is still alive, then they're still breathing, which means that they have to use a compensatory strategy. So under these circumstances, if I, if I need to restore range of motion and I have a bias towards exhalation, which is the, the bias of the wide ISA, then the simplest answer they could possibly give you to restore hip abduction is that I need to restore a non-compensatory inhalation. But we might have to construct that. So there's a couple of things that we want to recognize about our wide ISAs. Okay, so if I grab Fred here, so Fred's actually got a pretty wide ISA. So your infrasternal angle is going to be right there. But one of the properties, um, when I have an exhalation bias, I have to look at the pelvis because we're talking about hips. And so with, with, the, with the bias of the wide ISA, I'm going to have a nutated sacrum. I'm a concentrically oriented pelvic outlet. And then I'm going to have a wide IPA as well. So my goal to restore the hip abduction, which is actually an external rotation measure, is to be able to close this, this IPA, which is representative of a, a non-compensatory uh, inhalation. Now, so right away, what I should recognize about the, the, the first compensatory strategy, which is a diaphragm compensation in, in the wide ISA. So I have a, a diaphragm that's going to move against the axial skeleton to allow me to breathe in. I get this wide 
IPA, which means I'm going to have a limitation in abduction right off the bat because I am going to increase the concentric orientation of the, that musculature, which promotes internal rotation of the hip. So my remember, my wide ISAs are biased towards internal rotation, which for those traditionalists, it's going to also allow that adduction to occur. Now, the one thing that you're going to have to pay attention to is, do I have any other compensatory strategies superimposed? So if I get a posterior compression at the base of the sacrum, if I have any anterior orientation, I'm going to pick up even more concentric orientation of the musculature that's going to limit my external rotation measures. And so you're going to have to pay attention to that. So if I do have any anterior orientation, dead giveaway is going to be a loss of ER at the hip as well. What I have to do is I'm going to have to, to reorient that pelvis first. So I gotta, I gotta recapture the ability to posterior orient. So that's going to be hip extension activities because I gotta bring that ischial tuberosity, I'm gonna bring this ischial tuberosity closer to the femur. So I gotta bring it this way. And the way I'm gonna do that, it, again, is with hip extension activities. Um, so um, my preference would be to do something uh, unilateral under these circumstances because if we do bilateral hip extension activities, there's a concern that we're going to create that posterior lower compressive strategy and then that we just created more interference for our ability to try to recapture a normal movement. So it could be something as simple as, as some form of, of glute bridging. Um, and as we advance people through these hip extension type activities, um, we, we can look at arm bar variations that are going to promote this hip extension. As we get people to standing up, then we're looking at some variation of like a sprinter step up or a crossover step up at, at the much more advanced level. Um, we want to achieve an effective exhalation. So first and foremost, we've got to get the ISA to move. So we need a dynamic ISA. So what that means is, is that the diaphragm is now able to move from its compensatory concentric orientation to a normal eccentric orientation. So that's what an effective exhalation is. And this is representative of an, of an ISA that will move. And so when we do our ISA test, just look at the YouTube video um, that I have posted. When you do your ISA test, we should restore dynamic movement of that. And then you should also see a restoration of some of your, your extremity motion. If we need shape change to, to promote this dynamic ISA. So, so Fred here's a really good representation because he's, he's pretty wide and he's also flat front to back. So if you got somebody that looks like that, you might need to do some form of axial rolling. So again, arm bars come back onto the table, um, sideline activities to help promote this anterior posterior expansion. So we're going to take advantage of gravity to help us expand this thorax um, anterior to posterior. Um, if we're assuming that we don't have this posterior lower compression that I was talking about before, so this is this would be uh, concentric orientation below the level of the trochanter, we've immediately got that zero to 60 range that's available to us in the thorax and in the pelvis. So we can start to do reaches within that range. We can work on dorsal rostral expansion activities within that range. Um, we can even go into the gym. We can do some staggered stance, high to low cable pressing, and some limited range chopping variations um, that will allow us to, to create the posterior expansion to achieve the normal non-compensatory inhalation strategy. Um, we've got um, oblique sitting that we can use. So that's a nice unilateral activity that's going to help promote the, the, the shape change through the thorax. 
and then we could even move forward towards like a heels elevated split squat variation again as we get into higher level activities now if we have normal internal rotations that immediately buys us 60 more degrees of activity. So now we've got reaches up to 120 degrees and we've got full depth almost on, on all of our split stance uh, activities. So now we have upward reaches. So we have pullover vari variations that are on the table. We've got straight arm cable pull down variations and even a, a downward dog if you, if you can get to that. Um, we've got full range chops now available to us and we can add the cable lifts back in. Um, without worrying about having a compensatory strategy. So again, when you think about strategies, we need a dynamic ISA to make sure that we've got our availability of that full diaphragm excursion so we can now get an effective exhalation and a normal inhalation without any compensatory strategies. So Mihail, I hope that gives you a little bit of strategy, a little bit of understanding. Um, just make sure that as you go through these activities that you can breathe through the entire activity. If there's a breath hold involved there, you're going to have to use some form of compensatory strategy. Everybody have a great Monday, and I will see you guys tomorrow. Happy Batman Day. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand, and it is perfect and thankfully very very warm it is cold this morning i had to go full hoodie so first day of is this the first day of fall first day of fall and i gotta go full hoodie it got cold real fast anyway hope you guys are nice and warm let's dig into tuesday's q a this comes from raj so I, i'm assuming it's raj with the j and raj says considering the perspective the perspective of your model do you find value in any of the traditional assessment tools taught us in physical therapy school like manual muscle testing I'm having trouble finding a good rationale to support its use. I get, I get it. I get it. I don't use, I don't use manual muscle testing a lot. So a couple things come to mind. Um, if you find it useful, by all means, go ahead and use it. If it helps you make a better decision, by all means, use it. But, but let's look at it from, from a couple of perspectives here. Is that, is that one, it's based on a faulty premise that we can somehow isolate individual muscles, and then that's, that is somehow useful or valuable. Always remember that that um, the construct of individual muscles is a man-made concept. So we decided that we had individual muscles and therefore the structural reductionist model would, would default to the fact that we can somehow isolate them out and, and that is somehow valuable or useful. Um, where manual muscle testing may be useful, Raj, is in the case of where we might assume that there is a neurological insult of some sort. So we could talk about anything from a lesion of the nervous system to an infection that might influence the nervous system's ability to produce output and therefore we may be able to identify that through through some measure of the inability to to provide resistance um, during a, a manual muscle test so if we had like a nerve root compression or something like that we do a battery of neurologic tests we may be able to formulate you know a, a, a presentation that that would uh, provide us some information so for instance like great toe extension or dorsiflexion being weak in, in some cases where we would have nerve root proximal nerve root compression it might be useful crush injury something like that where we have a peripheral nerve issue and we maybe we can identify some some limitation in force production and again it may help us create a little bit of a picture in in that regard when we have an intact nervous system i think we've got a we've got a, a whole different 
perspective that, that we have to um, take into consideration. Uh, the traditionalist view is that is that we have weak muscles, which would be like an, this intrinsic quality within a muscle that there's a problem with a muscle, and they would call it they would call it weak. But again, I think it's just a, a bad interpretation from from a bad model. Um, so let's let's use an example. So if I was to say that. You know, we were going to do sort of hip flexion in side lying or something like that. And, and so I, I have you raise up your leg in, in traditional hip abduction, which is actually external rotation. And I push down on it and it gives way and I say, oh, you have a weak, okay, we'll say gluteus medius. Here's the problem with that is we all know that, that if, if I have an anterior orientation of the pelvis, the musculature above the, above the trochanter actually changes its direction. So traditionally in dead guy anatomy, um, we would call these, these muscles external rotators, but if I anteriorly ran to the pelvis, their angle of pull actually changes direction, they become internal rotators. So if this, is, if this traditional hip abduction is external rotation, but I have the muscles that are oriented to pull an internal rotation, of course it's gonna test as if, the, as if I have a weakness, but it, it, it's not an intrinsic problem with the muscle itself, <clears throat> excuse me, it's just the orientation of the pelvis to begin with. So how can I use this? Well, maybe I can use it as a test-free test. So like I do identify your inability to produce force in a certain direction. I recapture the ability um, to, to fully anteriorly and posteriorly orient this pelvis. And now maybe I do have something that, that might be useful. Now, the, the thing you also wanna consider is that all of our movement is, is based on, on shape change so if I measure something in the context, I measure something on the table, I say, wow, I, I've recaptured all this really cool range of motion. I have full excursion of internal and external rotation. I have full excursion of inhalation to exhalation. And then I stand you up. So now I've changed the context. And so now my isolated measurement becomes less useful because I'm dealing with a much more complex situation where I had this interaction of the entire body in space. So now my range of motion representations become infinitely more important than any form of isolated uh, muscle type quality um, uh, measurement because no matter where I express the range of motion, whether it be on the table, um, on my side, on my back, or standing up to access that range of motion, I do this, I have to use the same compression and expansion strategies. Um, so, so again, in a complex movement, um, like a split squat, for me to access 90 degrees of hip flexion in a split squat, I know I need to be able to access hip internal rotation under those circumstances. Otherwise, I'm going to have to use a, a compensatory strategy. And so these situations are not dependent on these isolated muscle actions. And so the manual muscle test under these circumstances really doesn't help me. So my range of motion measures are infinitely more useful to me than some form of isolated manual muscle test. So I don't really use it under most circumstances because most of the people that come to see me are typically neurologically intact. And so again, I just wouldn't use it under those circumstances. So Raj, I don't think it's totally useless. Um, out of respect to Florence Kendall and all those many folks that, that, that came before us. Um, I appreciate their work. I just don't think that, uh, again, I don't think it's a good representative model. I don't think it's based on a good model. So its use, it becomes very, very limited. Um, so hope that sheds a little light on from my perspective. Again, if you like it, use it. If it's helpful, use it. If you make good decisions from it, use it. Otherwise, let's put it in its place. Everybody have a great Tuesday. I'll see you tomorrow. Good morning. Happy 
Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. Man, Wednesdays are always crunch time for me. I got a bunch of stuff I got to do before I hit the clinic. And um, so we're going to dive right into this morning's Q&A, which is actually kind of a fun one. It's about bench press. So everybody's going to love this. Um, this comes from Ben. Ben says, hey, Bill, I hope you're well. I am. Thank you for asking. Um, thanks for doing all these Q&As. You're welcome. Uh, he says, I've got a wide ISA client who presents with limited shoulder internal rotation on both sides, more on the right. He also has limited shoulder flexion, but more on the left. So it's more limitation on the left. And he experiences right shoulder pain when bench pressing. Um, his right elbow likes to tuck in more. All his hip measurements are limited as well. Would love your thoughts and solutions on this. Okay, Ben, you didn't give me a whole lot to work with, but you gave me some really, really good clues that I think um, we've got enough information to, to help you out. So let's dig into this. First and foremost, let's describe what's actually going on while he's bench pressing. Um, so you're, you're talking about a position where the left arm seems to be away from his body and his right arm seems to be tucked in. And so what that representation actually is, is his rib cage and, and thorax are actually turning, turning to the right. So when you have your hands fixed on a bar, that's going to um, secure the, the hands in, in pronation, which is going to put us towards internal rotation, which is where we've got to be anyway for a bench press. But point being, if I've got limited shoulder flexion, the typical uh, compensatory strategy for limited shoulder flexion, especially in the early range of shoulder flexion, which you would be exposed to in, in a bench press, is to turn away from it. So again, so he's, so he's actually turning his rib cage on, on the bench. And so this arm looks like it's far away and this one looks like it's tucked in. Now, here's the problem with that is because what you've actually done is you've actually turned the right shoulder towards greater internal rotation. So I need internal rotation for a bench press. I need internal rotation for my compressive strategy, concentric orientation, and, and propulsive activities. And then I need to move through a space that demands I have internal rotation. So we got a triple whammy there. And so you got a ton of compression in that right shoulder under these circumstances. And so that may be why your client is experiencing right shoulder pain. Um, this is actually a really cool little little uh, compensatory strategy, and it's probably not that uncommon. So uh, probably what I'll do is when, as soon as I get a little bit of time, Ben, I'm gonna I'm gonna go into the gym. I'll probably grab grab Eric, um, and and we'll go through um, how this is actually happening. So so um, um, if I don't do that soon, please send me a reminder. All right, so. What's our solution here? Step number one, because you're dealing with a painful situation, you're gonna to have to clear this client for any structural issues. And so if you don't have the capacity to do that, I suggest you get them to somebody that can. Let's rule out anything that, that may be, be important under these circumstances, because whenever we're dealing with pain, we've gotta clear those uh, structural issues. Number two, uh, take a break from a bench press. Um, you basically got two options here. You either take the bench press away because it is problematic or you keep training the heck out of it as hard as you possibly can until he breaks and then you have to take a break from the bench press. Either way, you're gonna have to take a break. I suggest you do the, the, uh, the first option there, much safer and, and uh, much more caring um, for that client. Um, in fact, what I would do, Ben, is I would remove all barbell exercises from his program at this point. You're basically fixing the extremities under any circumstance, whether we're talking about a squat, a deadlift, a, a row, or, or any kind of pressing. You're fixing the extremities in a position that are going to promote more internal rotation. 
from a rehab standpoint, um, if you again, if you don't do manual therapies yourself, you're probably going to want to find somebody that does. Um, if this person has any level of, of hypertrophy or or is is actually a very very strong human being, you're probably going to need some help getting. Um, this this rib cage to move, so you got to get a dynamic infrasternal angle. So that might require some manual therapy. We need sternal movement because if you're if you're missing internal rotation, you don't have pump handle pump handle movement in the anterior thorax. So we need to recapture that. Um, clavicles are, are going to be be limited in the ability be, um, ability to rotate. We gotta get the ribs to move more effectively. You're gonna have to decompress the, the scapula from the dorsal rostral space. So that's that's a manual technique, by the way. I have a video of that on YouTube. I also have one for the um, for the uh, um, scapular elevation. So so look at those two. And and if you, again, if you don't do manual therapies, get somebody that can apply those techniques. Um, you may have to have somebody that, that's good with their hands to help reduce some of the concentric orientation as well. Basically, you've got a guy that's really, really compressed, and you've got to get a whole bunch of expansion here um, to restore his ability to move uh, freely through space. Okay, from a rehab exercise standpoint, um, I got a couple of videos on YouTube um, specifically for dorsal rostral expansion. So there's a seated variation, and then there's a better band pull apart video um, that is also um, really effective for dorsal rostral expansion, one seated, one standing. Um, you can immediately go to some sort of high oblique sit activity, which is gonna help start to um, reshape the, the thorax a little bit, get some of that anterior posterior expansion. Um, and, and as you can move into a lower oblique sit um, type of an activity, which would be, it'd be closer to what looks like a side plank variation, um, you'll start to get some, some pump handle activity uh, from that. You can do supine cross connects, so they should be in a non-provocative uh, position based on on the upper extremity, and then a sideline propulsive activity um, will also be helpful. Again, sideline is a great way, especially for these wide people, to get some of that anterior posterior expansion because we're taking advantage of gravity. Once you can capture 90 degrees of shoulder flexion uh, without pain, supine arm bars are now on the table. You can throw in a screwdriver on top of that. <clears throat> excuse me, to promote some internal external rotation, and then you can eventually move to a prone propulsive activity, which is going to get you a ton of that, that uh, posterior expansion and yielding strategy uh, that your client is lacking. Um, if you want to take you into the gym, um, we've got suitcase carries that are probably on the table right now. Um, eventually, you can probably turn that into a, a rack carry so we can get some ER and IR out of that. Backwards sled drags um, with, with two handles to promote the yielding strategy posteriorly. So you get some expansion, you get some pump handle action. You're also gonna get, get some hip mobility out of that as well. Um, high rep tricep pushdowns uh, with a band um, also uh, is gonna keep you close to that transition between internal and external rotation and give you some of the yielding strategy uh, posteriorly in that dorsal rostral space. Again, you're gonna need that. So dumbbell curl variations, there's a bunch of videos on my YouTube channel um, for that that you can also use to help keep that dorsal rostral space expanded. The key element with any of the resistive activities that I've just mentioned is that you can breathe through it. The minute you have a breath holding strategy under any circumstance during these activities, you are promoting the limitation that you are trying to, to alleviate. So keep that in mind. So in a nutshell, what you got is you got something that's very, very compressed. They're using compensatory strategies. 
um, during the, the activities in question. So in the bench press, maybe they're carrying them around, I don't know, but either way, when they're bench pressing, this is what they're using. So you have to reduce the compressive strategies and, and eliminate the interference um, through all of the activities that you're that you're doing. So you might have to restructure some programming. Unilateral activities are gonna be much more effective than, than bilateral symmetrical activities and take the barbell out of their hands. So Ben, I hope that gives you something to work with. If it doesn't, if you need more, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com and we will, we will provide you another solution if you have another question. Everybody have a great Wednesday and I will see you, oh, coaches, uh, Come to the Coffee and Coaches Conference Call tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. It's going to be Thursday. It's Chips and Salsa Day tomorrow. Have a great day. Happy Thursday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand, and it is perfect. Previously in a video, I heard you say that ipsilateral loads delay propulsion. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense in my head from a forward-back locomotion perspective. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in my head from a cut perspective, because in my eyes, in my mind, the contralateral load would push you further into the cut, and then the ipsilateral load would put you out of the cut. Can okay. you go over the, the cut sequence or like what's going on in a cut from an ipsilateral okay. and contralateral load? Hang on. All right, so. I'm, I'm, I'm standing behind you, all right? Okay. And we're both, and I'm mirroring you. You're gonna cut off of your left foot, okay? Right. All right. So hang on. So as you go into the cut, I'm gonna shove you from the right into your left leg, right? Got it? Okay. okay. And then as you try to come out of the cut, I'm gonna grab your left wrist and yank it towards the floor. Which one delayed you? So would it be the, the wrist link? Yeah. It's an okay. ipsilateral load, right? It's yeah, the, yeah. Ipsilateral load. There's the delay. Contralateral load is going to get you there, and ipsilateral load is going to keep you there. And it's going to make you want to push you and there. It's gonna, it gives you something to push against, and then doing so, it creates the delay. Are you drinking so, moonshine? Is that moonshine? No, it's, it's water. <laughs> I already drank two cups of coffee this size, so like I'm... I'm moving. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm going here. All right. All right. Just want to be sure. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Mike. What's going on, guys? You have your, hold your cup up. Let me see. You got it? There he is, ladies and gentlemen. There's your neurocoffee guy. Morning, I, would be morning, nothing everyone. I would be nothing without this guy. By the way, uh, Dr. Mike, uh, my coffee is perfect. I, I did not expect any different. I, I've got a client, um, he's very wide, um, very compressed AP, um, and fascinatingly enough, whenever I put him in side-lying or invert him, he like can't breathe, like his nose gets stopped up. Okay, um, how are you inverting him? Um, elevating knees, going forearms to the floor. So butts up in the air, heads down. Okay, he's wide. Flip him over on the other side, first and foremost. Okay, because um, you're 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 dumping his guts into uh, a position of the diaphragm that's not going to allow you to to um, flip flop this space. Okay, um, 
but he still may not be able to breathe in, in that circumstance, just an FYI. Um, if he is really compressed, so this is, this is one of these really neat things about, about the iterative effects of squishing a pelvis, squishing a thorax, and then squishing a skull. So the, if, if you look at, get a cross section of a, of a pharynx, okay? So you can see where, where the, the, the tube goes, so to speak, posteriorly. And so if you're compressed AP, the pharynx is gonna be narrowed um, A to P. So in, in certain positions, um, just the, the, the position alone is gonna uh, cause the mandible to retrude and the tongue comes with the mandible. And so that immediately narrows that space. Um, if he's got like a like a a, a soft palate uh, that is also um, interfering, so you've got some musculature that's attached there as well, and and so um, if 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 that area collapses right or or is just narrowed to such a degree, you can't breathe through your nose. So people will talk to you like they're stuffy, right? So you're going to have to actually, you're going to have to be a little bit more creative. You're not going to be able to put them in those positions, right? But you can still um, maybe use like, an, a, like a low oblique position where you got them propped on an elbow, okay? That's still sideline. So you still, you still get some advantage there. Um, and then he's a little bit more upright. And so you'll be able to get, get some, some uh, airway opening. Let me let me find this picture because um, does everybody know Joseph Sinelli? So um, Joe um, does a lot of airway stuff with with patients, and um, he gets scans. They do cross sectional scans of airways. This is a guy that this is a a guy that's a wide ISA. Um, with a lot of AP compression, you can see the retruded mandible on him. You see the like the little double chin action that you got there. So that's a mandible that's actively pulled back. So the hyoid is pulled up. The suprahyoid muscles are concentrically oriented and it pulls the mandible back. And so if you look at the 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 scan on the on the upper left and you see the the green and orange there, the cross section of the orange is right right below the 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 tongue. And so that's a compressed airway. And if you look at the cross section, which is the upper right hand, so you can kind of see the jaw there, and you see that little orange thingy there, that's a picture of the, of the airway. That's how compressed it is A to P. So it's the ex exact same shape as the thorax, it's the exact same shape as the pelvis. So this is a, this is a passively retruded mandible, okay? So, but the hyoid is down and that opens the airway. And so if you look at the green, in the upper left, you can see that, that her airway is a little bit more open. And then you go to the upper right and you see that, that the airway is more round. And, and, and again, it, it, it kind of does. So, so now you just got to say, okay, if I put you in this position, clearly you cannot expand sufficiently and you're creating another interference. So you just have to put them in a position where there's no interference. And it might be, it might be that you have to start upright. There, that's okay, right? But you, but you learn something really valuable here um, is that, you know, while you can kind of follow the rules a little bit, it's like, oh yeah, you're, you're compressed A to P up top. I'm going to flip you upside down. 
not everybody can go upside down. Bill, if you had to give yourself uh, business advice at 25 years old, what would you do? What would you say? Get a job. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, get a job and then and then work your business. Gotcha. But, but, but all seriously, like, like you were get you were working your PhD and you were you you literally were already a businessman. You you were you refurbished an entire home and then gave birth to twins, right? Like all. In well, so I guess I'm sort of taking my own advice here in that I think when I was uh, in my early to mid twenties, one of the things that I was able to leverage to get more reps in my mind was was graduate school, and then I managed a biochemistry lab for a year. There's a lot of sitting around in science, like. Yeah. When you do science, you sit around a ton. You wait for humans, you wait for centrifuging, you wait for rotovapping. And I use that time to get the reps. As you get all those reps, you get exposed to what you like, what you don't like, what resonates with people, uh, what doesn't resonate with people, who are the people you like resonating with. And then that allows you to kind of further hone in what you want to yeah. get after. Bill, <clears throat> I have a question about um, orthotics. Okay. So I heard of people saying that you should um, not get your orthotics made if you're pretty dysfunctional. So if someone gets their orthotics made, they're just reinforcing what they have going on and they should try to correct it first. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to influence the, the, the output per se. I'm not trying to, one, I don't think dysfunction ever, right? Because I don't, I don't, I, I think that, that everything that we see is a normal circumstance under the context. It's like, what does this person bring to the table from a constraint standpoint, from an experience standpoint, and then this is the solution that they're offering. So, so at, at, at worst, I would say that people are defending themselves against something, which is very oftentimes in, in, in my, my world, they're, they're fighting gravity. I just want to influence its behavior um, to allow the, the, the adaptability throughout that, that full propulsive range. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is. Perfect. All right. Friday, we are wrapping up another busy week. Got lots of calls this morning, so very excited about that. Um, we're going to dig into a little bit of a Q&A that, that is sort of a combination of factors here. So we had a little bit of discussion about this on the on the coffee and coaches call uh, yesterday morning in regards to ipsilateral, contralateral loads into out of cuts things. Um, IFAST University, we've been talking about rotation and how how that's actually created and acquired. And then I got a little bit of an email thingy about some rotation. So, so we're going to kind of combine this into, into to one Q&A. We're going to discuss the influence of this upper extremity loading where we use um, load on one side to induce rotation um, in regards to you know, any kind of rotational activity, whether it be golf, tennis, baseball, um, cutting, or just uh, simple gate parameters. Um, Give a little shout out to, to, to Eric at iFast. Eric's been uh, playing around with a lot of this stuff on his Instagram, so, so um, go check out him. He's got a lot of demos on some, some creative ways to apply this. Um, he is at eph.24 on, on Instagram, so, so check him out. 
But the thing that we want to talk about here is is the difference between actually capturing the position that allows us to to rotate versus just a pure orientation. And and we can actually look at this through the pelvis a little bit. Um, a lot of people are 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 turning the entire pelvis as a unit. So we would consider that an orientation versus versus this clean rotation. They're actually using this as a substitute for, for hip shifting during some of their activities. What we're actually trying to induce is, is we're trying to create a yielding strategy. So right over here on this, on this side, we're trying to create a yielding strategy where we get this, this counter nutation of the at the base of the sacrum, which actually allows this nice clean turn. And this is where we can actually demonstrate um, a lot of the velocity that's associated with turning. And so this would actually occur after the maximum propulsive phase. So when we talk about like a golf swing um, or a tennis serve or, or throwing a baseball where we have these max propulsive elements, um, this, this type of rotation is going to occur after. And this is actually where we demonstrate the, the velocity. So we can't, we can't move at very, very high speeds with a lot of concentric orientation because it actually creates interference um, to, to, the, to the velocity and to, to the turn. When we talk about an ipsilateral load, so we're loading through the upper extremity, so for like a, a split squat or a Camperini deadlift or, or any kind of um, um, actually upper extremity load, um, an ipsilateral load, so load on one side. So if I'm talking about my right side load, so we're gonna say that's the, that's the ipsilateral side. What is that that's going to do? It's gonna induce a posterior compressive strategy on that side. So if I'm right, right hand load, so let's just say I'm doing a, a suitcase carry uh, with my right hand, I'm gonna see a lot of posterior um, compressive strategy on, on that side. The load is instantaneous, and so I'm also gonna see uh, an overcoming action on that, on that right side. The cool thing is, is that when I get this right-sided posterior compression, I'm gonna get an anterior expansion. And so this is why we see the, the restoration of, of internal rotation um, on, the, on this, the sides of our, of our carries but it also reduces the external rotation that's available to me. So, so flexion being one of our external rotations, especially in this early phase, one of my compensatory strategies under those circumstances is to actually turn away from the restriction. So if I'm carrying weight in my right hand, I'm actually inducing my ability inducing my ability to turn away from the load. So this creates a potential yielding strategy on the contralateral side that I would need for this nice clean rotation. And so, so we use words like facilitates and potential and induces intentionally here because the load is going to provide us an opportunity for this rotation to occur, but it doesn't guarantee it. So, so again, the, the loading approach creates the yielding strategy, but we can resist it. And if you've ever done um, say a, a dumbbell row, like a one-arm dumbbell row with the intent of increasing strength, whatever that might be, and then, or hypertrophy or something along those lines, chances are you're actually resisting this yielding strategy because your goal is to try to maximize your force production. You're trying to maximize the, the, the load demand on, on the musculature. So any resistance exercise where load is maximized or we're, we're using symmetrical loads with the intention of narrowing the propulsive phase um, to, to increase force production, 
um, we're going to resist this yielding strategy that allows us to turn. So this is where strength training actually becomes interference. So this thing is not as black and white as people would, would make it out to be. I can't just say that, oh, if you put your weight on this side, this is going to happen. What we're doing is we're, we're inducing a situation that allows us the potential to access these. And so um, one of the things that we have to consider is that when the goal is to restore movement or enhance movement, the load can actually be interference. And so this means that um, there might be situations where we, we need to manipulate gravity. So one of the ways that we can manipulate gravity is to use uh, pulling motions from, from above. So, so like a cable chop activity where we're pulling weight down is actually a reduction in, in the demands of gravity. Um, in other cases, we have to take uh, people all the way down to the floor where we might have to put them in side lying and then progress them to half kneeling and then then finally up to split stance because they just don't know how to manage gravity as, as well. So there's a lot of potential interference here but the thing that we want to understand is that, that the goal is to induce the potential or to make things easier or to facilitate the ability to make these turns with, with the, the loading through the extremities. So when we talk about the, the strategy, the most common errors that we're going to see, as I've already mentioned a little bit, is, is too much load. Um, so, so we're talking about gravity, we're talking about external loads. So anything that, 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 that can influence this by a load would be like a, a medicine ball that's too heavy. Um, weighted baseballs that are, that are too heavy um, will, will uh, extend the propulsive phase and actually reduce our, our velocity um, up to a certain point. Weighted golf clubs um, can, can also become interference. And so that's why we would we'd move you towards activities that, that would re reduce that load. Too much velocity too soon. So a lot of people can't control these end ranges at higher velocities. And so what they end up doing is they end up expanding um, their, their um, max propulsive strategy. So, so they use too much concentric orientation. They actually reduce the velocity in an attempt to control it. And again, that becomes interference to rotation. So we get this orientation where the entire system is turning as a unit versus getting this relative motion through the pelvis and through the thorax that, that we want to actually produce this nice, clean, smooth, and efficient rotation. Um, too much excursion. So some people just don't have the, the joint excursion available to them under certain circumstances. And so what we might have to do is start on a very, with a very narrow stance um, to try to induce some of these, these yielding strategies. And then we can slowly expand um, their, their stance to access, access these broader motions. And then we can start to apply that through their excursion. So for instance, if I was taking a, a golfer that was having trouble with, with follow through, I might need to start them in a very, very short staggered stance um, before we can actually induce a, a normal width stance for him because he just can't control the velocity. He can't access the ranges of motion. So I hope that gives you a little bit of food for thought. Um, maybe stimulates a few more questions. So if you're on IFS University, please ask more questions about this. Um, if you're not, why aren't you? Um, and then um, you can always ask me a question at askbillhartman at gmail.com. Askbillhartman at gmail.com. Everybody have a terrific weekend, and I will see you next week.